This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're now well into Women's History Month, and International Women's Day was this last Sunday, March 8th. As we continue Cultivating Places Women's History Month interviews, we're joined this week by Andrea DeLong Amaya, Director of Horticulture for the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at the University of Texas at Austin. It is also the Botanic Garden for the state of Texas. Andrea has been on staff for over 20 years and has more than 30 years of experience in horticulture. She guides 15 staff members in the design and management of nine acres of native plant gardens, 275 acres of natural areas, and a native plant nursery. She teaches classes in native plant horticulture and writes and presents on her passion for the field widely. She spoke with us late last autumn to share more about the history and work of the center, including it being the legacy of another extraordinary woman, Lady Bird Johnson. Andrea shares her own enthusiasm for this field of work. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. I'd love for you to start by describing, describe the Lady... Bird Johnson Wildflower Center as visually as you can for listeners who may not have been there. And then we'll talk a little bit about your specific work there, Andrea. Sure. So we are in South Austin and in, in the middle of Texas. We are in a part of the state that we refer to as the Texas Hill Country or the Edwards Plateau, which is a beautiful, beautiful part of the state. Of course, Texans will say every part of the state is beautiful, but I want to say that Tex- the central Texas area is particularly beautiful, especially in the spring. We're really renowned for having excellent wildflower displays, including the Texas blue bonnet, which occurs all over the state, but the central Texas area is particularly floriferous in the spring. Yeah. And so we are, like I said, in Austin, and the site that we're on is a public garden. We're about 285 acres. I think we actually added a little bit more um, in the last year or so. Then it's a public garden where we feature plants that are native to the state of Texas. That's the site. Now we, the organization is bigger than that, Um, but the gardens here, we're demonstrating how different native plants can be used in different kinds of landscapes, different kinds of styles. We have collections of plants from different parts of the state. Um, We are the Botanic Garden of Texas, so we're trying to increase our collections to represent other parts of the state as well as the central Texas area. So we have about nine acres of cultivated gardens, and then we have a 16-acre Texas Arboretum of trees. Um, So those are the horticultural areas, and then we have natural areas in um, the other parts of the the property. Um, and the, the natural areas also include some of our research uh, mm. areas. We have some um, areas where we're doing um, land management, prescribed fire treatments and different kinds of land management to uh, see how that influences the vegetation. Yeah. And we can talk more about that if you're, if you'd like. Definitely, definitely. I will, uh, I would love to get into some of the specifics of, of each of those areas you just described. But before we get there, describe your, your, your job there, what it entails, and maybe the trajectory of your 20 years there, Andrea. Yeah, well, I started as a gardener appropriately and uh, really enjoyed just working outside. I mean, I've always been interested in being outdoors. And that goes way back to 
my childhood, as probably most people who have an affinity for the natural world, um, that usually starts in childhood. So I grew up doing things outdoors with my parents, particularly with my dad. We'd go camping or canoeing. And I remember having a field guide of uh, of wildflowers and weeds that surrounded our area where we lived. And that was great fun. But, you know, everything from astronomy to birds and lizards and insects, just everything is so interesting. Um, and I just find that the more I learn about things, the more I'm fascinated and mm. in awe of the natural world. Mm-hmm. So that's just started early, but it's just been a long, a lifelong um, interest in learning more and observing more. I mean, I, I laugh. We have a big picture window at our dining room table and that's our TV. We don't have an actual electronic TV <laughs> in our house. <laughs> and it's overlooking our garden and our pond. And we just sit there and watch the animal antics and what's blooming. And it's great fun. Yeah. Uh, and it's a nice way to slow down in our fast paced world. Um, that's a, that's a big part of what I think nature does for me and for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, uh, so you started as a gardener. What year was that, Andrea? And then tell us about the progression of your roles at the center, uh, which clearly you progressed in because of your deepening curiosity and ever-expanding knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started in December of 1998 and um, worked as a gardener. Uh, I've gardened in most of the areas that we have in uh, under cultivation over the years, and at some point, we had a position of gardens manager was available, so I moved into that. And then, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, um, I transitioned into the director of horticulture. And um, unfortunately, that means a little bit less gardening than I used to do. But <laughs> fortunately, it also gets me in a higher level of designing and decision making, which is very exciting. And, um, you know, it allows me to have more influence over some of the bigger picture things that are happening um, and then overseeing the natural areas and the arboretum and the nursery has also been pretty, pretty fun and, and adds different interests to what, uh, what I'm looking at. Yeah. So talk about, um, before we get into the specifics of some of the programmatic uh, areas and display areas there and then the research, give listeners a history of the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center, when it started, what its original mission and scope was, uh, of course, the wonderful woman for whom it is named and by whom it was founded in its original iteration. And um, so that, that people have an understanding of just how much bigger it is than a garden that's appreciating wildflowers, because that is a fabulous mission, but it's, it is much bigger than that. So we are very blessed to have had the visionary Lady Bird Johnson as our founder. She founded the Wildflower Center initially as the Wildflower Research Center, the National Wildflower Research Center. And that was an endeavor that she took on with her friend and actress, Helen Hayes, which a lot of people don't remember that part of of the history. But it's kind of funny, Mrs. Johnson didn't feel like she had enough name recognition. And so she <laughs> had the assistance of Helen Hayes. Um, and so the, her mission right from the beginning was to really try to understand and unlock the secrets of wildflowers and native plants and understand how they grow. And that was the original research that the Wildflower Center did at that time. And so that was in 1982. So the organization started back then. We moved to our current site as a public garden. Um, Before, it was more just a research site uh, with some portables, but it didn't really have 
botanical garden kind of exhibits. Mm -hmm. So when we moved to uh, our current site in 1995, that was really a big focus of making the space um, amenable to guests and having exhibits that people can interact with and having educational programming and really um, elaborating on that. When she first started it, why, uh, we'll just remind listeners, she was, of course, the first lady of the United States, and she uh, had a, as first lady, she had some remarkable initiatives to uh, beautify, I think was the the word that was used then, um, roads and highways across the country. And she was taken by the wildflower diversity there in her home state uh, for good reason, because it's a pretty remarkable native flora. Will you talk a little bit about that and, and why people thought this was not just a, a pretty project, but was worthy of deep research even at that time? So, yeah, Mrs. Johnson grew up in a rural setting and without siblings, and so she was a loner a lot of the time. So her best friend as a child was outside, um, just the outdoors. And I think that was what what uh, instilled upon in her the this great passion for the for the natural world. And then as she became first lady, um, she really had a great influence on President Johnson in terms of um, passing legislation. One of the things she's known for is the Beautification Act, the Highway Beautification Act, and getting billboards off of the roadsides and cleaning up roadsides and planting wildflowers. And the way I understand it, you know, we talk about it as being beautification. And she knew at the time, she was very savvy that at the time she knew that that was a word that would engage people, the Mm -hmm. public. Secretly, I've, I've heard that she felt like that was actually kind of a prissy word <laughs> and that it was she I think she understood it was deeper than just beautification. But right. that was a way to connect people with the idea that she had. Mm-hmm. The native flora of Texas. Talk about the diversity you have there and how the diversity of Texas, which is not just I mean, which is a, an enormous place with a lot of microclimates. And um, but talk about how that diversity is then valuable as a kind of prototype for researching and understanding diversity anywhere, Andrea. The state is a big state. And so <laughs> because of that, we're really blessed with many different ecoregions and vegetational zones. We have, depending on how you um, look at it, we might we have about a dozen um, different vegetational zones. And it's kind of a funnel. You know, if you look at how the, the geography of North America, um, as things migrate and flow back and forth from north to south America, it goes through Central America and and through the funnel of Texas. Mm. So we get plants and animals coming through there that um, over millennia have really made it for a very rich um, environment, which is super fun to be exploring and studying and and gardening with those plants and and gardening for wildlife, the diversity of wildlife that we have. Um, What is your current number of sort of native plants in Texas? You know, we have thousands, I don't, maybe 5,000 native plant species or taxa in the state of Texas, but I would have to confirm that number. Okay. On our site, we have about 900 species of native taxa on our property here. And taxa would include species and sometimes subspecies. Right. I think one of the things that's really interesting to me and part of what makes 
native plant research so interesting is that, um, you know, it's that great John Muir quote of you can't pull on one thread in the universe without tugging on the whole of the universe. But the native plants, as you were describing that idea of Texas being this fabulous funnel in migration patterns and and water, like large watershed scope, you get this sense of the complexity and history of that interrelationship between climatic patterns, geology, the tectonic plates of our continent, and how plants and animals are interrelated with all of that. And it's all co-evolved into this fabulous, beautiful soup that, you know, in your region is the big, beautiful state of Texas. Talk about how over time the different display areas have evolved there at the center and what their kind of individual purposes are from the perspective of not only engaging the public but also providing um, laboratories for research and data and information collection. The gardens themselves have not been um, the subject of actual research and study mm-hmm. so much. I mean, informally, you know, as gardeners, we're all, every time we garden, that's always an experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have more of our formal research is happening in the natural areas, primarily with the, the land management research. Mm-hmm. I would like to progress as we move forward to doing more plant trials and other more formal kinds of horticultural research. But just demonstrating these plants um, and having them in a garden setting where we can somewhat control conditions. Some plants obviously are pretty malleable and will adjust to horticultural kind of settings. Others uh, we found are not that well suited for gardens. They may be beautiful plants, but they may be tricky or they may be really specific in the kinds of areas and conditions that they want to grow in. People love, there's a little plant called um, mountain pink, which is super cute. It's um, it's maybe a foot tall and it looks like this perfect bouquet of flowers with hot pink blossoms on it. And they bloom in the summer. They grow in road cuts where it's just basically solid rock almost, you know, just caliche. And people love them and they want to grow them in their garden. You try to grow them and they rot. Uh, because they really don't like the richer soils. They don't compete well with bigger plants that, you know, would be more robust and and bully them out. So a lot of what I'm trying to do and and what we're trying to demonstrate in our gardens is that pick the right place for the right conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a complicated thing. And that's, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is is make that information as easy for people to access as possible because every individual plant might have um, their own conditions that they require to thrive. Yeah. And a lot of what we're doing too is gardening with plants that have never been in a horticultural setting. And we have our on-site nursery, which makes it really easy to propagate things. We can collect seeds. Um, sometimes we'll take cuttings or divisions and then use them in the gardens and see what they do and try them in different soil types and in different watering regimes and different light conditions and see what happens. Um, so, but that's really just the gardening part of it. And then I know that there are several different display areas. Could you walk us through those? Yeah. So probably what most people think of as the main garden area is what we call our demonstration gardens or the theme gardens, Mm -hmm. which is an area that we have a bunch of different separated 
beds. They're in squares. We have 23 of those, and each one has a different story to tell, uh, which makes it great fun. You know, each one um, is designed to demonstrate plants that are attractive to hummingbirds, or maybe this one is uh, the genus Salvia that we're highlighting, or the grass family. One of um, my favorites is the botanist bed, which is plants that are um, selected because they have, they're named after important botanists who did work in Texas. Hmm. Lindheimer, Ferdinand Lindheimer is the father of Texas bot- botany, and he has the most plants named after him, so he gets the biggest box. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's a little history lesson as well as a botanical display. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another area that we call the Taste of Place Garden, and that is highlighting native plants that are used for different edible purposes. So Chili Pekin is a little hot chili pepper that uh, is the prototype for most of our peppers. Like uh, it's Capsicum annuum is the the botanical name. And that's the same species as our bell peppers and our serranos and our jalapenos. Um, So these little chili Pekins are hot. They're tiny little fruits, but they are powerful. And I love to be able to share those with, with our guests. There are other things like agaritas that have a really nice sweet fruit to them and kind of a tart sweet fruit. So that's been a lot of fun is to show people that a lot of our native plants could be used in a garden setting. There's been, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, a lot of interest in cultivating edible landscapes at homes. Mm -hmm. But people are usually thinking, you know, tomatoes, peppers, that kind of stuff, which is great. But to be able to incorporate native plants, many of which are perennials and don't need to be replanted every year, they also are adapted to our climate. So they're going to be heat tolerant or cold tolerant or thrive under the watering conditions that we have. But then they're also providing wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm interested about that proto hot pepper that you were describing. That's a native plant there. Do animals eat that? Is that a, a valuable food source for birds or, or yeah, mammals? It is. One of the common names is um, bird pepper. Bird it's, pepper. It's really favored by mockingbirds and you know, if you've seen like parrot food, a lot of times we'll have dried peppers in it. And ah. there are just some birds really, really like to eat them. Really adapted to the spicy food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to get the mockingbirds off of them if you want to enjoy them. But most people are happy to share them with their birds. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Andrea DeLong Amaya is the Director of Horticulture for the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at the University of Texas at Austin. We'll be back for more with Andrea after a break. Stay with us. Hey, as we continue these conversations with women featured in The Earth in Her Hands, I continue as well to give you some additional background into my process for the book. If you didn't hear my interview with sibling program host Dave Schlom of Blue Dot just a few weeks ago, make sure to look for a link to that audio in this week's show notes. It was a lovely interview. Some of the primary threads of inquiry while I was researching and writing this book were into how the plant world is improved as a result of being more representative, not only allowing for more women to excel, but also nurturing a much greater diversity of women. How the field is far more viable and creative and innovative a career path for women than ever before. And how this plant work world is demonstrating greater social and environmental responsibility, in large part due to women's contributions. 
And finally, on how our human engagement with plants connects us to the natural world, stewardship to our communities, and to ourselves on powerful intellectual, physical, and spiritual levels. Andrea DeLong Amaya works in the metaphoric soil fed by the legacy of another great woman in the horticultural world. Not a horticulturalist herself, but a plant lover, Ladybird Johnson. These are good women to learn about in Women's History Month. Now back to our conversation with Andrea DeLong Amaya. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. In this second week of Women's History Month, we're speaking with a native plant conservationist and advocate, Andrea DeLong Amaya, Director of Horticulture for the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at the University of Texas at Austin. I remember visiting, I want to say four or five years ago now, and just being really impressed with uh, the beauty of the gardens, the caretaking of the gardens, and how much native plant and aesthetic gardening information you got all together. Thank you. Yeah. Um, certainly the aesthetic part is important because we would love for people to embrace these plants and use them at home. Most, not all of them, but, but most of them. Um, but then we also use the research that we've done and incorporate those into demonstrations. So we've done in the past, um, we've done a lot of work with green roofs. Mm -hmm. So as you walk around, you'll see a number of green roofs that um, demonstrate different kinds of settings that native plants could, could be part of. Part of the research was to develop a planting media that is designed to um, work with our hot, dry climates. And then not just planting succulents and sedums, which I think most green roofs have, but we're incorporating grasses and wildflowers into those areas too. So that's one of the things that we have on demonstration, you know, green walls where we have um, screens that will provide some shade to buildings and all different kinds of sustainable practices that we're able to incorporate into our landscapes here. Obviously just using native plants is helpful. we have the Ian and Lucy Family Garden, yeah. which uh, is a fairly new um, addition to our gardens. It's about five and a half years old. When we built it, though, we were designing it to be certified under the Sustainable Sites Initiative. That's a set of criteria that people can follow voluntarily if you want to go through the system, the ranking system. And then depending on what kinds of things you incorporate into your landscape and the kinds of sustainable features that you include, you can get a rating similar to leads for architecture. If, mm-hmm. if your listeners are familiar with that. Yep. Um, so we do things like using native materials, not bringing things in from a far distance in the construction that helps reduce the, um, the carbon footprint that you would have if you're bringing things in from other parts of the country or even other parts of the world, mm-hmm. incorporating, materials that don't have toxins in them. So a lot of the metal that we used, we didn't use any zinc, for example, in all of the hardware. And we're trying to use the Forest Stewardship Council certified wood products using mulches that are recycled. One of the things that um, is a big highlight for kids especially, but adults are interested in this too, is we use crushed glass, which the city of Austin collects from our recycling bins 
you can crush it and tumble it so it's not sharp and then use it as a as a mulch like a mineral mulch wow. and it has all different colors in it because you're mixing all those glass pieces in so you have sea you have sea glass beds all over the garden <laughs> i love it well maybe not sea glass they're recycled <laughs> right. glass. city glass good. i guess you'd call city it glass. rather than sea glass <laughs> so um i had one question about the you mentioned which i i think is uh kind of a part of the sustainable materials work you're doing. When you were doing the research to develop the media for the green roofs, of course, by which you mean the, the, what you plant the seeds in on top of that roof, what, what did you use? How, what, did, what was the media you ultimately developed, Andrea? Um, actually, the actual recipe is proprietary and I don't actually even know what, what's in it. Um, it is all recycled and locally sourced materials, wow. yeah. which is one of the, the criteria that we we're looking at when we developed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that they experimented with um, a, several different materials to see what would be both lightweight, but also good draining and would hold moisture, but not too much, you know, allowing for the drainage to happen. And what's also important to understand that, a lot of green roofs are actually not that sustainable. They're using materials that are brought in from far distances. They may have peat moss in them, which is not mm. really a sustainable material. Mm-hmm. So it was really important for us to make sure that we were using materials that were renewable and locally sourced as yeah. well as being functional. Right. And I believe that there, just like here in interior Northern California, it's a slightly different climate, but you run up against some very similar issues, such as uh, water resource management, um, both Absolutely. as uh, runoff and as a, uh, a precious resource during many months of the year. Talk about your some of your water uh, catchment and distribution methods in order to use that resource as wisely as possible. When the Wildflower Center was initially built, we had the largest rainwater harvesting system in the country. Mm. Um, We can harvest almost 70,000 gallons of rainwater and store it, um, which is wonderful that we're able to use that on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, It's superior to city water anyway. So that's always been an important piece for us. And yes, you're right. Water conservation is a huge thing in our community as well. And that's been a really big selling point for promoting native plants because they are adapted to our climate and generally they're going to use less additional water in a a landscape. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, one of the other features that we have in the family garden that was site certified, we have a series of rain gardens and they're all connected. So when one fills up, it flows into the other one. And the idea of, of these rain gardens is that when you get a lot of rain, the water is directed into these depressed areas that have um, a planting media soil that is well draining. And so it helps percolate the water into the ground. So it's not just running off, but it also directs it and stores it long enough so that some of it will go into the ground. And then if we get really a lot of rain, it'll flow into the next one, but we're able to capture more water instead of contributing to um, flooding downstream, for example. And also the, the soil will help filtrate Uh, filter out impurities, um, which is probably more important if you're in a parking lot or on the side of the road or something, not so much the garden. We don't have toxins in here, but, but that's another function that a rain garden would have. 
And it's a fantastic model for the people who are visiting. I don't know. I know you have millions of visitors in a year, and in all likelihood, many of them are coming from urban areas where runoff onto urban hardscape that goes directly into open surface water and disturbs the the balance of the water, the quality of the water, the habitat for all of the aquatic life, both animal and plant, is becoming more and more important in our world of increasing urbanization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, filtering out the toxins is, is critical. Mm-hmm. Not using toxins to begin with in your landscape is helpful, but there's certain things that, you know, roadsides we're still driving, so we're, we're going to have runoff. And using rain gardens and filtration ponds can be a great way to mitigate that. It also provides its own amenity. Um, a lot of our native plants we think of as being very drought tolerant, but some of these plants that grow on... Uh, along creek sides are very um, adapted to wetter situations. And mm-hmm. so having a rain garden gives you another place to put some of those species that might like a little bit extra water. Yeah. Now, you are there in Austin. What what zone are you in? What, do you know your annual precipitation on average, Andrea? We get about 35 inches of rain per year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The problem is that we get it all at once. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we might get easily a five inch rain, um, within a 24 hour period so that, um, we're really in danger of flash flooding in our area. So all of these water issues that we've been talking about manage, how to manage water is really important for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, what, what zone is that? Um, so the garden zone that we're in is 8B. Okay. But I also think it's important to look at, um, because I think that just talks about what the temperature is, but we're looking at cold, and heat in the summers. A lot of the plants that people bring in from other places to grow in Texas, if they're not from Texas, they're going to have a hard, a hard time adapting to our heat. That's often something. But then there's also the water issue and right, right, and when a lot it of other comes, factors that go into that. Yes, yes, that learning to garden with your climate is is such an interesting one. When I first moved here to Northern California, I thought, oh, well, a lot of my same beloved plants from Colorado should do fine. And on paper, they might do fine. But in fact, they don't love the wet winter that doesn't freeze quite as hard. And they often rot, as you are describing, in your um, dry but sometimes humid summer conditions. Like it's it's a reminder to all of us that gardening in our place uh, is most successful if you use plants adapted to the conditions of that place or similar from around the globe. So the and that and that really is is our mission is yeah. to promote native plants wherever they are. And by using native plants, you're doing a lot of things. You're um, not adding extra water. Um, if you've cited the plants appropriately, you may not have to add soil amendments. And I have air quotes around the word amendments. Mm-hmm. You're providing habitat. You're also enhancing your sense of place, you know, that you have plants that are, that look like your area. That was something that Mrs. Johnson would say. She wanted Maine to look like Maine and Texas to look like Texas and California to look like California mm-hmm. and to really help fighting against that homogenization of the American landscape where you can go to different places throughout the country and look at a, uh, a landscape and you have no idea where you are. The plants do not, do not uh, tell you anything about the region or the culture of the space or the natural history of this, uh, of the region. Yeah. So those are definitely important pieces of what we're trying to do. 
So then let's move to the conservation arm. And while you indicated that not a lot of research is directly developed for the display gardens, clearly they are the recipient of the a lot of the lessons learned from the research, and they are sending a lot of models out into the public who visits them. Talk about the conservation work specifically around the natural areas and the, the forestry part of the, the center? So some of the research, um, when we moved to the current, uh, our current location, we shifted away from doing um, research on individual species, like figuring out how to grow blue bonnets, for example. Um, when we moved to this location, we have more space. And so our research also shifted then to larger scale landscape management studies. So mm -hmm. we have maybe about 50 acre to an acre and a half plots and they get different land management treatments. So some of them get burned in the summer. Some of them get winter burns. We might mow some of them. We have um, control areas that we don't manage, you know, uh, actively at all. And then we compare them. We do vegetation studies and see how the landscape is responding to those different kinds of treatments. And then that helps inform us to, um, you know, make recommendations on, you know, if you want more grasses, this is a good way to do it. If you want more flowering plants or wildflowers, do this. If you're trying to manage certain invasive species, there are different things that you can do that would help with that. So that's been a, a research project that we've been working on here for about 20 years, and we're going to be publishing that information hopefully pretty soon in the next year or two. Mm -hmm. Then we've also um, done... Um, other studies where we've housed endangered species. We had a, the endangered towbush fishhook cactus that was rescued from a site that was going to be under construction. And then mm. we took advantage of that opportunity and housed them in our greenhouses and then did fecundity studies where we're looking to see how successful these plants were to reproduce. So how much they flowered, at what stage did they flower, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that we've done more recently that um, has had a lot of interest is developing best practices for growing milkweeds. People are really, really ex inspired to plant milkweeds to support monarchs. And one of the hard things is that it's, um, it's a real challenge to find native milkweeds. There are the Mexican milkweeds that are more readily available that we encourage people not to use, but that's what you can find. So we have been really actively trying to not just provide native milkweeds to Texans, but also to get local genotypes. So we're collecting from different parts of the state and then providing those propagules to local growers that can then make them available to their constituents and trying to get local genetics and local species in those different areas. So that's been a lot of fun and, and yeah. very interesting work. How many different native species of milkweed are there in Texas? Off the top of my head, I would say maybe a dozen or so. What are some of the ones that are the most, uh, the most widely known or um, available for people? Um, in our area, the bigger, the more um, populous ones, we have an antelope horns milkweed, Asclepius asperula. We have green milkweed, Asclepius viridis. We have yerba de zazotes, which is Asclepius enotherioides. Um, those are probably some of the more common ones. Um, mm -hmm. A little further east in the sandier soils, you'll find the butterfly milkweed with the orange flowers, the Asclepius tuberosa. And is Asclepius speciosa 
or speciosum, uh, the showy milkweed, that's pretty ubiquitous across the country, but is that there pretty widely as well? Yeah, we do do have um, speciosa is in Texas, not so much in central Texas, but it does occur in other parts of the state. And do monarchs tend to like them equally? That's a very interesting question. No, they do prefer um, some species over others. Um, the ones that I just mentioned, the uh, zizotes and the green milkweed and the antelope horns in our region, seems to be they seem to be the more favored okay. species. Mm-hmm. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Andrea DeLong Amaya is the Director of Horticulture for the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Texas is an enormous state and has an amazing diversity of native plants. It also clearly has a great history for strong women working in horticulture. We'll be back for more after a break with Andrea. Stay with us. So thinking out loud here, what does it even mean to be a woman in plants? It's not exactly a plants woman, though many of the women in the book are that to be sure. But working with this diverse group of women who have tangential relationship to plants has been something akin to mapping mycelial pathways in the soil of a forest. It is sometimes fragmented, but still in connection and in communication. These women in the book have learned from each other. They riff off of each other all the time, reacting and responding, exploring, identifying, and narrowing down ways in which these women have been extending the territory of what working with and in and for plants does and doesn't mean has been powerful. Almost unanimously, these 75 women in the book feel that at least culturally, women tend to hold important abilities to collaborate, nurture, and to think holistically, and that women tend to employ systems thinking, which is related to a multitasking mentality. But across the board, another of the really interesting things about these women was their own wariness at the constraints of binary thinking and reverse bias. They all see and hope that more women of all kinds in all fields of study will forge greater balance in how we approach life's challenges in community. Now, back to our conversation with Andrea DeLong Amaya, whose work at the legendary Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center outside of Austin, Texas, is building community and supporting it there. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. In this second week of Women's History Month, we're speaking with native plant conservationist, gardener, advocate, and plant introducer, Andrea DeLong Amaya, Director of Horticulture for the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. Native plants are such a wonderful resource, but that lag between gardeners wanting them and the industry being able to successfully supply them, there's a disconnect, a lag there. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things that we're trying to do, tying back to supporting monarchs and pollinators in general, um, is to provide a nice selection of plants that bloom in the fall. Because because of our geography, we get the migration as the monarchs are migrating from north back down to Mexico. They come through mm-hmm. here and it's a long journey and they are hungry. So what's more important in our area than milkweeds is actually to provide a lot of nectar plants for the uh, fall migration. Yeah. So that's been a really um, important thing for us to promote. And as I mentioned, we're growing a lot of things that we can collect seed from, you know, in natural areas. So we, we really can experiment with growing anything we want to. And we can benefit from the great help of our many, many volunteers that help make it economically feasible to do that because mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. Um, and then it's been fun over the years to see how the nursery, the local nursery industry has been picking up some of these plants that we've been able to make available. And you see them more and more in gardens um, in, in the Austin area and in central Texas. I would love to continue seeing more of them out there. And mm-hmm. we're always trying to um, promote the things that we found to be the easiest to grow and the most successful that we think people will appreciate having in their own landscapes. Give us some examples of some of those fall flowering plants that you've uh, been working to propagate and get introduced into the public that are particularly useful for, I'm sure, not just the migrating monarchs, but that is a fantastic signature creature to supply for. So plants that are in the sunflower family and the verbena family tend to be some of the best. Also the mint family. Mm-hmm. Um, so just your straight sunflowers are fabulous for providing nectar to butterflies of different species and other pollinators too. Bees love them. It's one of my favorite is a plant called shrubby boneset, which has a kind of a fuzzy white flower. And when they're in full bloom in the fall, it is they're covered with monarchs and queen butterflies also. And it's just a powerful view. Like the whole thing is just swarming with creatures. It's it's infested with butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> and the, um, the queen, of course, is a, a relative of the monarch and is a beautiful butterfly. We don't see them much here, but interestingly enough, we had one on my uh, partner's property just maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and one of our great butterfly experts here, Art Shapiro down in Davis, said he hadn't seen one in our region in 48 years. Wow, that's, yeah. that's pretty interesting. It took that's us quite a while cool. to identify this, but the fact huh. that it was on the milkweed uh, was interesting because, of course, very few creatures are co-evolved to be able to metabolize the milkweed. So it was really an interesting, yeah. and I think you have a, a lot more um of them there. So the sunflowers, okay, so straight sunflowers, what other fall blooming plants are so really successful there? So verbena family was another one that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. We have Texas lantana. Now you can go to garden centers and buy all different kinds of lantanas, but our local native one has a nice orange flower to it. Um, and you don't have to worry about it becoming invasive on a landscape scale because it's, it is native although that opens up a whole nother uh, discussion about <laughs> native plants and whether or not they can be invasive. Yeah, there um, are some thugs. There are some native thugs. Some, no, no two ways about it. It all goes down to land management. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the Texas lantana is a beautiful, shrubby, very drought-resistant, very heat-tolerant plant that is a great nectar source for all kinds of beautiful creatures. And um, 
it's deer resistant too, which people love. But that's a nut, that's one that blooms in fall and spring and, and mm -hmm. is a great nectar source. And then an, an example of a plant that we're promoting that you don't see very commonly available for uh, for gardening is a plant called frostweed. Mm. It's a verbicina mm. and it has a cluster of white flowers. It's also a favorite for the monarchs, um, but other pollinators as well. And it, what's interesting about it is it's um, a lot of people think of it as, as being a weed because you see it in wild areas, but it has a nice big coarse textured leaf and a kind of a lime green color. And it, it's a plant that does very well for us in the shade. And we're always looking for plants um, that will give us some more interest in our shady gardens. And it's called frostweed because the first hard freeze in the season that we get um, the sap will ooze out of the stems. And as it freezes, it's slowly pushing that sap out and it forms ribbons. Uh, the, the sap freezes as it comes out and it makes these curly Q ribbons that when you wake up the next morning, you're like, what happened? Why is there styrofoam peanuts all over my landscape? And you realize that it's just the icicles coming out of the frostweed. Wow. Um, so that's a pretty cool thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you have any in the mint family that you would suggest? Yeah, really, most of the salvias are very good for attracting yeah. various kinds of pollinators, um, particularly bumblebees, which we're also trying to encourage. Um, there's been a lot of buzz about bees. And, uh, you know, it's great to provide nectar for uh, and pollen for honeybees, but we really want to promote our native bees as well. Mm -hmm. And so this leads me to a question that um, I think I had mentioned to you that I was interested in in learning a little bit more about. But I read a little bit about something called the Pocket Prairie Initiative, which I just found so compelling, just that little title of a pocket prairie. What is this um, kind of planting? We have different areas um, in our landscape that uh, we call the kind of landscape that we have is a savanna, and that is meadows that are dotted with trees. Um, and it's not a forest and it's not a prairie, but it's like a savanna. But these little grassy areas within the savanna, you could talk about or describe as being a pocket prairie. Or in a residential landscape, you can have a small pocket prairie where you incorporate grasses and native wildflowers that provide habitat. They provide a certain aesthetic too, but primarily people do it as a habitat. And it's important to make sure that you incorporate grasses because that's an important part of any prairie. And a pocket prairie is generally kind of treated as a garden. It's usually, you know, it's a smaller scale. So it's something that you can manage a little bit more like a garden as opposed to, you know, acres that you would manage you know, with broad breaststrokes, you can fuss around in your own landscape and do things by hand. And it's an important way to provide nectar and nesting materials for birds and insects. And just, you know, incorporating a diversity of species will attract a diversity of wildlife that is very interesting and fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, talk about the importance of grasses in these landscapes, not just for their particular form and, and beauty, but for the benefits they offer to uh, the habitat aspect and to perhaps the soil profile. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so grasses provide a lot of different ecological benefits. People think about them as being a seed source for seed eating birds, which is a wonderful thing to, to make available for seed eating birds. Little lesser known is that there are butterflies called skippers. There's a group of butterflies called skippers that use the grasses as their larval 
food for their caterpillars. And then there's just nesting materials that birds will take the leaves to make, um, make their nests out of. Um, and then the soil profile that you mentioned, that's another really important thing. Grasses tend to have a pretty extensive root system. And as those roots grow and then decompose, it's expanding and contracting the soil, which helps loosen the soil and keep it from getting too compacted. That decomposition of the roots also adds more organic matter into the soil. There's a whole fauna of wildlife that lives in the soil that we don't even understand. And that is a good matrix for all of that stuff to start happening. So grasses are definitely an important part uh, to include. So as we get close to the end, I know this has been an overview and the history and scope of the center is really magnificent and we could talk about it, you know, in much greater detail with just narrowing in on one of the locations or display gardens or research projects. But I really wanted listeners to have this overview of what is happening there. And especially as it's, you know, now the botanic garden for the entire state and trying to represent all of that diversity. And its larger research is interacting with and communicating with research units across the world in terms of native plant research. Talk about some of the long-range goals of the center at this point, Andrea. As the Botanic Garden of Texas, one of the primary things that I'm focusing on as a director of horticulture is raising awareness of both the beauty and the function of our native flora and just how diverse it is and trying to inspire people to em embrace these plants to first off understand them better and then also as people understand them better to appreciate them more and perhaps use some of these plants in their own landscapes one of the things that i'm trying to do with the gardens for example is use native plants as people expect them to be used which would be kind of a naturalistic looking space um, more wildflowery maybe a wilder look but also for those people who really prefer a more stylized garden or a more controlled look just because you're using native plants doesn't mean that you have to have a messy or wild looking garden you can use native plants in a variety of styles and it depends on your maintenance and your design more than the species. So that's an, a, a message that I'm really trying to get across that you can have shared hedges of yopon, just like you would a shared hedge of boxwood, but you have other benefits of having native plants in your landscape. And then we have our native plants, uh, we have a database, the native plants of North America that we're improving. And our goal is to have representation of all 20,000 plus native plants that occur in the U.S. and Canada. So that's a pretty big, ambitious goal. Mm -hmm. And our website is very powerful. Having, you know, if you check out our database, we have lots and lots of um, information and photographs of many, many species already. So growing that is a really big goal for us. And then just growing into our role as the Botanic Garden of Texas. And is there anything else you would like to add about the importance of this work for you personally, as we, we look towards a, an ever-changing future and or for the center as a whole? I think it's really um, important for us to continue the legacy that Mrs. Johnson started with promoting the conservation of native plants, native plants wherever they are. And I think as our culture 
is more and more urban and more and more connected digitally and less and less connected with our natural world, the role of botanical gardens in general is becoming more and more important. And for me personally, I really want people to see the beauty and the diversity and the functionality of our native plants and how our native plants provide the matrix in which all wildlife in the whole natural world are really dependent on. You know, people tend to be plant blind. You know, you talk about monarchs and bees and uh, birds, and those are all important creatures that are part of our natural community. But it's also important to appreciate that all of those things are possible because of the plants that they're relying on. And it's part of, as you alluded to earlier, this, this fabric. And if you start taking threads out you know, you might still have a piece of cloth for a while, but if you keep removing threads, eventually that piece of cloth is going to lose its integrity and fall apart. And I see plants and animals and all of these different elements that are part of our ecology like that. You can remove certain things here and there, but eventually you're going to have a collapse. And it's so critical at this point in time that we really recognize how important that is and not allow ourselves to be too disconnected from that. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today and for your fantastic work there at the garden and as a gardener yourself, helping to strengthen this fabric we all love. Great. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Andrea DeLong Amaya is the Director of Horticulture for the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at the University of Texas at Austin. It is also the Botanic and Research Garden for the state of Texas. Andrea has been on staff for over 20 years and has more than 30 years of experience in horticulture. She guides staff in the design and management of nine acres of beautiful native plant gardens, 275 acres of natural areas, and a native plant nursery. Her enthusiasm and knowledge for this field is extraordinary. For every episode in March, Cultivating Places highlighting one of the women in my new book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants, which officially published last week on March 3rd. Join us again next week when we continue our series on women in plants, when we are joined by Dr. Elaine Ingham, founder of the Soil Food Web, Inc. Listen in. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. The earth is in all of our hands, so take good care. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, make sure to check out the many photos of the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center and Andrea DeLong Amaya's work there. They are absolutely beautiful. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.